You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. For our regular listeners, you know that we really haven't been talking about healthcare because we are in a time uh, with the Biden administration that is moving us more towards socialism slash even Marxism uh, concepts are within our federal government as we speak. So what I've been trying to do with this program is to explain the social issues that we have been facing and we'll ultimately get back to health care because we've got elections coming up. We've got uh, new blood coming in that hopefully will change some of the direction of the country. But in the meantime, I want to educate the audience as well as educate myself around a number of the particular social issues that are troubling us. And last week, we started with the history of slavery and how racism and slavery kind of got intertwined in the United States, when in reality... We know from the history that it wasn't about one race against another race that created slavery. It was the powerful versus the less powerful people or the people who were being subjugated throughout the history of man. And it was whites enslaving whites. It was Asians enslaving Asians. It was Africans enslaving Africans. And we know from last week that as... Countries started to develop and put in their own military for the protection of their people. They were less likely to be enslaved by other populations. And so in the course of the last few hundred years, the weakest area of the world that was subject to being dominated was Africa. They did not have the same kind of governmental structure, military structure to protect their population. So as the Western world was strong and dominant, especially Great Britain. They dominated and began to enslave the African people, not because they were black, just because they were weak. But we also know from last week that it was the British Empire that took the lead in trying to get rid of this institution of evil uh, slavery. And so I want to go back to Thomas Sowell's book, The History of Slavery, to, again, emphasize the history, the cultural changes, the way slavery was ultimately defeated, not by some great war as we had in the United States, but, but by worldwide the power of the British government and what they were able to do in stopping this evil as developed in their culture, in their politics, that slavery was anti-Christian, was anti-human, that we all have the right to live in peace, regardless of whether we're from a weak culture or a strong culture. That kind of domination that occurred throughout our history of mankind just was not to be allowed anymore. So let's go back to the, the book, and let me ask the question again, how did the British actually make these changes, and how did they initiate the beginning of the end of slavery? The dogged persistence of the British eventually reduced the shipment of slaves across the Atlantic and across the waters of the Islamic world. Although the French flag was for many years widely used as protection from the boarding of ships on the high seas by the British Navy, 
even by slave traders who were neither French nor authorized to fly the French flag. Eventually, France itself turned against slavery, outlawed the institution, and sent some of its own warships to patrol the Atlantic off the coast of Africa to intercept and deter the shipment of slaves to the Western Hemisphere. So what you're describing is how Great Britain took the enormous first step and the expense and the use of its power on the seas across the world uh, to send out the message to all cultures that slavery was wrong, was evil, and had to be stopped. And they spent a lot of time and money doing it. And then France joined in, which created the enormously powerful coalition of the Western world and of those countries that were basically colonizing other parts of the world, but colonizing in a way not to encourage and produce slavery. But what about the United States? Where does the United States fit into this timeline? The American flag was likewise so used, and the United States, like France, eventually turned against the slave trade and sent warships to join the Atlantic patrols to interdict slave shipments. Although by 1860, the Atlantic slave trade had been effectively stopped, the slave trade from East Africa across the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf took longer to be reduced significantly. I find it interesting that the Western world took the lead in getting rid of slavery, yet the history or the perception that Americans have is that this was something unique to the United States. It's also interesting that many in the minority community are migrating towards the Islamic culture and the Muslim religion. So tell us about the slavery activities that were happening on the east coast of Africa and how the Islamic world was involved with that slavery trade. Off the east coast of Africa, smaller Arab vessels called dhows hugged the coastlines in waters too shallow for the British warships to enter. One British commodore estimated that he captured one Dow for every eight that escaped. Nevertheless, during the period from 1866 to 1869, 129 slave vessels were captured and 3,380 slaves were freed. Well, we know the cruelty to slavery and the evils of it in the United States and how the transporting of slaves from Western Africa to the United States meant that there were a lot of deaths along the way in the ships that really weren't handled, uh, structured to handle slavery in any sort of compassionate way. They were packed in, they died of starvation, they died of dysentery, they died of the overcrowding conditions that were there. On the East Coast, where uh, it did not involve the United States, but slavery to that part of the world, how did the Islamic community uh, react and respond when they were charged with stopping the slave trade. When the threat of being boarded seemed imminent, the Arabs would throw slaves overboard to drown, rather than have them be found on board, which could lead to British seizure of the vessel and punishment of those who manned it. The worst that could befall the slaves was when the slaver was overhauled by a British cruiser, and they might then be flung overboard to dispose of all evidence. Arabs, when pursued by an English cruiser, cut the throats of 24 slaves and threw them overboard. The Arabs would not hesitate to knock slaves on the head and throw them overboard to avoid capture. It's always amazing to me 
to hear stories of man's inhumanity to other men. How it can possibly be that we treat other human beings, let alone just other living things, animals, we treat them better than we do humans in our history. So again, the message that we're hearing in this presentation is this has not been a phenomenon of slavery unique to the United States. This has not been a situation where the United States has been such an evil empire and that we ought to be um, removed or institutions eliminated because of slavery, that this has been a worldwide phenomenon that the United States actually was one of the early motivators, along with the British and the French, to eliminate slavery. And in fact, we fought a civil war to eliminate slavery, where almost 700,000 Americans were killed in our battle to try to eliminate it, that it already uh, reached its evil roots onto the shores of America. So give me a, another example of the man's inhumanity to other men on the eastern side of Africa again, so we know that this is not an evil that was unique to the United States. In another episode, the Arabs' ruthlessness toward the slaves was further revealed. When the Daphne's cutter captured a dhow with 156 slaves on board, many were found to be in the final stages of starvation and dysentery. One woman was brought out of the dhow with a month-old infant in her arms. The baby's forehead was crushed, and when she was asked how the injury had happened, she explained to the ship's interpreter that as the boat came alongside, the baby began to cry. One of the dowmen, fearing that the sailors would hear the cries, picked up a stone and crushed the child's head. So it's great to learn about what the British were doing on the high seas and how the man's inhumanity demand spread across multiple cultures, including the Islamic uh, culture. Tell us about what you know and any stories you're aware of that happened on land in Africa itself as the slaves were being captured by other Africans and by the Islamic culture that was taking these slaves and then transporting them across uh, Asia and India uh, through Zanzibar. British missionary and explorer David Livingstone related a similar incident on land. One woman, who was unable to carry both her load and young child, had the child taken from her and saw its brains dashed out on a stone. Dr. Livingstone also reported having nightmares for weeks after encountering Arab slave traders and their victims. This Christian missionary shocked by the brutality of the Arab slave traders. Okay, the purpose of these stories, of this part of the history, is not to minimize what happened with the America's slavery history and the taking of slaves and moving them from Western Africa it just shows that the trade in slaves was robust on the eastern side and the brutality and the horrors was across the world. So give us your perspective on how all this plays into the idea of American slavery. None of this means that the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade should be ignored, downplayed, or excused, nor have they been. A vast literature has detailed the vile conditions under which slaves from Africa lived and died during their voyages to the Western Hemisphere. But the much less publicized slave trade to the Islamic countries had even higher mortality rates en route, 
as well as involving larger numbers of people over the centuries, even though the Atlantic slave trade had higher peaks while it lasted. By a variety of accounts, most of the slaves who were marched across the Sahara toward the Mediterranean died on the way. While these were mostly women and girls, the males faced a special danger. Castration, to produce the eunuchs in demand as harem attendants in the Islamic world. Because castration was forbidden by Islamic law, the operation tended to be performed, usually crudely, in the hinterlands, before the slave caravans reached places within the effective control of the Ottoman Empire. The great majority of those operated on died as a result. But the price of eunuchs was so much higher than the price of other slaves that the practice was still profitable on net balance. Wow, it is both shocking and enlightening to know this history that what some people call white guilt in the United States is guilt of mankind throughout. It's not to dismiss or minimize the institution of slavery and its impact in the United States, its acceptance by the southern states in particular in the United States, but it is a wake-up call that we need to look at the whole of history before we start pointing fingers and saying that this country, the United States, is evil at its core. It was founded in slavery somehow uniquely, unlike the rest of the world that was so pure. That's just not the case. So let's continue this journey uh, into history and learning more about the history of slavery. Uh, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today, we're continuing our story looking at various social issues, some of which are hard to talk about in the general public, but we're going to do that here today anyway, because what we've been talking about last week and this week in particular is the history of slavery, so that people in this audience listening or listening to podcasts later on will understand this is not a uniquely American evil that happened, but this was an evil across the world, and in fact, understanding history, the United States fought a war to end slavery, and the British Empire spent a lot of time and money and military might and influence to stop the slave trade across the world, with no real benefit to them, no economic benefit certainly, except that it's the right thing to do. And the British culture, the Western culture, had come to the conclusion 
that slavery was evil, that man should not treat other men in this way, or women for that matter, but that it is an inhumanity to mankind that need to be stopped. And to a large degree, it came out of the faithful in the British Empire, the Christian religion, and the basics of Christianity. We don't understand that anymore in the United States. We have too many politicians on the left and the, with an interest more in socialism and Marxism of tearing down this country, when the reality is, and they probably know, or they should know, that it's not the United States that perpetuated the evil of slavery. Yes, we had the evil of slavery on our shores, the southern states in particular were engaged in purchasing and selling of human beings. But the country as a whole, our constitution was structured so as to get rid of this, and our culture ultimately demanded it. Some resisted, and we had a civil war where over 700,000 or nearly 700,000 Americans on both sides of that issue died in that conflict that finally ended slavery. But slavery was ending across the world, and the timeline for that is important, especially the timeline of the continuation, even after the Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln in the United States. And we continued with biases and discrimination of various groups, including minority groups throughout the history of the United States, even until today? The answer is, of course, yes. But the evils of slavery and racism, thinking that one race is superior to another race, that the white race is superior to the black race, is not part of the American culture today. It is perpetuated by the media, by Hollywood, by the socialist and Marxist politicians. The people in this country, the white population, 99.9% are not racist. Do we have people who are racist? Yes, but don't paint the whole crowd by the few extremists, the white supremacists, if you will, the KKK, any of those groups, they pale in comparison to the vast goodness of the American people. That's what we're talking about today, trying to paint the entire picture of history so that we don't look at just ourselves and look only at the last few years of what's been going on in this country and blame ourselves for the evils of racism. The evils of slavery, that has been throughout the world and throughout the history of mankind for thousands of years. So I want to focus this program and continue to focus it this week on the history of slavery. And let's look at what was happening as it was being ended and the difficulties of ending it, not just in the United States where we had the Civil War, but how do you end it in other parts of the world, in particular even in Africa and the Islamic culture, which was very deep into the use of slaves. So let's go back to the book, The History of Slavery, and find out what happened in Africa on the ground as things were changing to eliminate the issues of slavery. The British Governor General of the Sudan, C.G. Gordon, estimated that between 1875 and 1879, from 80,000 to 100,000 slaves were exported through his region. General Gordon imposed the death penalty on those convicted of castrating slave men to market them as eunuchs. His attempt to stamp out slave trading in the Sudan cost him his own life as an opposing army 
raised and led by Muhammad Mahad, defeated his troops at Khartoum in 1885 and killed Gordon, after which the slave trade flourished again. So slave trading continued once again in North Africa and in the Islamic world. When did it change again so that we begin to see the elimination of slavery? What's the time frame when that began to occur? British control in the region was firmly re-established in 1898 by the crushing victory of troops led by Lord Kitchener at Omdurman and including a young officer named Winston Churchill. Well, now that's an interesting point of history that Winston Churchill was heavily involved in the elimination of slavery on the African continent. You know, I remember the story about when President Barack Obama came into office He had the bust of Winston Churchill removed and sent back to England, mainly because Winston Churchill was involved in the colonization of Kenya. Well, I've been to Kenya. They speak the English language there. They have a growing culture there. And yes, the British government colonized Kenya. But in that colonization, it got rid of things like slavery. It minimized the impact of people robbing people, stealing people, grabbing people from the hinterlands of Africa and selling them uh, at Zanzibar. So tell me a little bit more about this British attempt, including Winston Churchill's involvement in stopping the slave trade in the Islamic world. On the issue of slavery, it was essentially Western civilization against the world. At the time, Western civilization had the power to prevail against all other civilizations. That is how and why slavery was destroyed as an institution in almost the whole world. But it did not happen all at once or even within a few decades. When the British finally stamped out slavery in Tanganyika in 1922, it was more than half a century after the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States, and vestiges of slavery still survived in parts of Africa into the 21st century. Now, I don't want to leave this audience with the impression that white Anglo-Saxon Western culture was pure in all this, that there was a unanimity of the white culture to eliminate slavery. Uh, There were pockets, substantial pockets, groups of people who were in favor of slavery for economic reasons, and I'm sure in many cases that there were racist intents as well. So tell us a little bit more about the coalition that was ultimately put together and the thought process of Western culture in eliminating slavery. How united was it? The unique position of the Western world in the history, and especially the destruction of slavery, need not imply that there was unanimity within the West on this institution. In addition to whites who defended the enslavement of Africans on racial grounds or who opposed general emancipation on social grounds, there were many whites, and even blacks, who defended slavery as a matter of self-interest as slave owners. Although most black owners of slaves in the United States were only nominal owners of members of their own families, 
There were thousands of other blacks in the antebellum South who were commercial slave owners, just like their white counterparts. I don't understand. Now we're talking about blacks owning slaves. Now, I know that some Jamaican blacks own slaves. Our own Vice President Kamala Harris family owns slaves, uh, but she's from the Jamaican black line, not the African black line. So tell me more about this that we don't hear about or certainly don't want to, the media doesn't want to demonstrate any kind of evidence that blacks um, were slaveholders as well. And it's just a minority, I know, but it's an important part of the history so that when we get into these discussions about reparations and eliminating racism in our institutions, we got to understand the whole history of slavery and that it was not just the evil white person who owned slavery, that the evil white person was the person, the culture, the British culture, the American culture, the, Fr the French culture that ultimately called for an end and actively fought to end slavery regardless of who owned the slaves. So tell me a little bit more about black slavery, owning black, blacks owning blacks in the United States. An estimated one-third of the free persons of color in New Orleans were slave owners, and thousands of these slave owners volunteered to fight for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Black slave owners were even more common in the Caribbean. In short, there were many defenders of slavery in the West even in the 19th century. And outside the West, slavery was too widely accepted to require defense. Now that we know a little bit more about the history of slavery, let's talk about the morality of slavery. Can you give us a little perspective in the book as to what it says about the morality of slavery? If slavery is not morally wrong, it is hard to imagine what else could possibly be wrong. Yet when Lincoln expressed this view, which was gaining currency in his time, it was a belief less than a century old in the West, and still virtually non-existent outside the West. We talk about the immorality of slavery, but in the South, in the United States, were a lot of people using biblical passages to justify slavery, just like the Quran um, supports and, and, and encourages slavery in the Islamic world. So tell us about the arguments in the United States on the immorality or the morality that some would um, would debate uh, is what makes slavery acceptable, appropriate, and natural. Only in the American South did a large apologetic literature develop, seeking to justify slavery, because only there was slavery under such large-scale and sustained attacks on moral grounds as to require a response. While slavery was referred to in antebellum America as a peculiar institution, in an international perspective and in the long view of history, it was not this institution that was peculiar, but the principles of American freedom, with which slavery was in such obvious and irreconcilable conflict. Okay, so now we're getting into the American experience and the moral arguments and the political arguments for and against slavery. Give us a little bit more on that before we wrap up this section. If all men were created equal, 
as the Declaration of Independence proclaimed, then the only way to justify slavery was by depicting those enslaved as not fully men. A particularly virulent form of racism thus arose from a particularly desperate need to defend slavery against telling attacks that invoked the fundamental principles of the American Republic. So what you're saying is that the American Constitution basically said that slavery couldn't stand on moral grounds, that all men are created equal. Well, let's take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to delve into that thought process a little bit more. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about the history of slavery. What we're learning here today, I think, is so important. I hope our audience is staying with us and listening to this timeline and the history of slavery in the United States and around the world. And there are some uniquenesses in the United States in terms of its history with slavery. And what we're learning is that our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution created a conflict with this institution of slavery. If all men are created equal, how could the United States countenance slavery? But was this the attitude of other countries that around the world? Let's look at South America and slavery and give us some perspective from the history of slavery, the book, on what was happening in countries in South America, as an example, that might not have had the conflict because they didn't have our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Nowhere else in the world was slavery in such dire straits ideologically, and nowhere else did racism reach such heights, or depths, in defense of the institution. As a noted study of Brazil observed, the defenders of slavery on clearly racist grounds were as rare among public supporters of slavery in Brazil as they were common in the United States. Brazil was not a democracy, 
and so had no such ideological contradictions to overcome. In short, racism was neither necessary nor sufficient for slavery, whose origins antedated racism by centuries. Racism was a result, not a cause, of slavery, and not all societies that enslaved people of another race became pervaded with racism to the extent that the American South did. So what you're pointing out is this moral argument based on Christianity to a large degree in the Western world created that conflict with the slave owner and the slave of saying this institution is wrong, but that didn't occur throughout most of the world who didn't have the same basic principles of morality to rely on. They didn't have those same conflicts. Is that what you're saying? The stark contrast between the slave and the free, which made slavery a moral issue in the Western world in modern times, was simply not there for most societies and for most of history in most of the world. In hierarchical societies, where people were born into their stations in life, ranging through many gradations from royalty to bondage. Slavery was simply the bottom rung on a ladder based on the accident of birth, one notch below the serf, who was bought and sold with the land instead of individually. Okay, since we've been talking about the morality of slavery, what about the religions itself, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims? How did they feel about enslaving others And how they feel about if their own were enslaved? Christians, Muslims, and Jews all forbade the enslavement of their own respective fellow religionists, though they did not always honor even this ban, but all considered it permissible to enslave others. Clergy themselves had slaves, and both Christian monasteries in Europe and Buddhist monasteries in Asia owned slaves. What did the Koran have to say about slavery. Some Muslims regarded attempts to abolish slavery as impious, since the Quran itself accepted slavery as an institution, while trying to ameliorate the lot of the slave. So when did this moral argument develop that contradicted Christian faith, at least, and ultimately to the other faiths who were brought on board? But when did this all sort of take root and be start the beginning of the end of slavery. What was historically unusual was the emergence in the late 18th century of a strong moral sense that slavery was so wrong that Christians could not in good conscience enslave anyone or countenance the continuation of this institution among themselves or others. What about intellectual leaders of the time? Many times it is those leaders that are in the minority but make a big impact with their writings, their paintings, their music. What is it about that time and who about that time were really promoting and distributing the information about slavery and the need to end slavery besides the religious leaders? Adam Smith in Britain and Montesquieu in France were among the secular intellectuals who wrote against slavery in the 18th century. Slavery was one of a number of long-standing institutions and traditions which were being questioned in the 18th century in the West. So why did it take so long for religion to sort of see the light and the evils of slavery and for the secularist thought leaders in the world to sort of understand how 
slavery was an evil that needed to be eradicated. What was the thinking before this enlightened period against slavery began to develop? To the religious, the world of the here and now was a transient thing, a prelude and a testing ground for the world that really mattered, the world of eternity. However, as a humanistic philosophy began to affect both secular and religious thought, what happened in the mundane physical world began to assume greater importance than it had before in the eyes of intellectuals, philosophers, and religious leaders. As the fate of human beings in the here and now loomed larger as a moral concern, the fate of slaves became part of the intellectual and moral agenda of the times. What I'm hearing you say is that before this great awakening, the churches, the religious leaders, just sort of accepted slavery as a normal course of events, of activities, of an institution that had gone on for thousands of years. Is that what you're saying? Over the centuries, established religious institutions in the West, notably the Catholic Church, but later including also established Protestant denominations, had made their peace with the institution of slavery as a fact of life and produced traditional rationales to reconcile it with the message of Christianity. So during this period of enlightenment of the churches, there were a number of splinter religious groups that were questioning the central authority and tenets and history and acceptance of things like slavery as well as uh, doctrinaire questions of the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, tell us about how those splits in the church and different religions developing out of Christianity were a part of this questioning of just the general acceptance of slavery. Now these institutions, traditions, and rationales came under fire from within, as well as outside, the religious community across a broad front, of which slavery was just one battleground. Religious minorities, such as the Quakers or the Evangelicals within the Anglican Church, could not simply rely on religious tradition and authority, because their very existence was based on a questioning of, and in some cases a break with, those traditions and authorities. These insurgents had to think independently about slavery, as about other things, and derive their own conclusions, as most people do not have to think through things which have been accepted facts of life for centuries. So the church's acceptance of slavery was being challenged by these new denominations that were developing on moral grounds and questioning things that had been accepted for uh, millennia. What, what about the secular intellectuals that were also questioning basic tenets of government, of cultures, of institutions. How did that play into this whole movement of anti-slavery? The rising class of secular intellectuals in the West could even less rely on the authority of established religious institutions. This did not mean that either secular or religious insurgents were automatically anti-slavery. What it meant was that they both had to evolve some intellectually and morally defensible position because they could not simply base themselves on existing beliefs or practices. Different individuals resolved the issues differently, but out of this process came some who began to see slavery as an intolerable evil. I understand some of the early religious denominations that were anti-slavery 
were the Quakers. Give us a little bit of the history around the Quakers' evolution towards anti-slavery and why. Quakers were the first religious group to find slavery morally intolerable, a threat to their own eternal salvation rather than simply a temporal misfortune of others. Yet even the Quakers did not arrive at this conclusion all at once. In the 17th and early 18th centuries, there were Quaker plantation owners in the West Indies and Quaker slave traders operating from London, Philadelphia, and Newport, Rhode Island. As late as 1705, most of the leaders of the Philadelphia Quakers owned slaves. However, as anti-slavery sentiment grew among the Quakers, slave ownership among these leaders declined to 10% by 1756. Then, just two years later, the Philadelphia Quakers banned the ownership of slaves by its members. But the anti-slavery movement didn't really start in the United States. You talked about the Quakers in the United States and how they changed, but since it all really started in England, Give me a little bit more of how the British Empire changed because of the religious views that were developing uh, in uh, Great Britain at the time from both maybe the Quakers and the Anglicans. In England as well, Quakers were the first to require members of their congregations to cease being slave owners. Evangelicals in the Anglican Church, notably William Wilberforce in Parliament, joined the Quakers and took the issue to the general public with a decades-long political struggle to get the British government to ban the trading of slaves. Only optimists thought this possible at the time, and even the leaders of the anti-slavery movement did not at first attempt the direct abolition of the institution of slavery itself, hoping instead that stopping the buying and selling of human beings would dry up the source and cause slavery as an institution to wither on the vine. I hope our audience is staying with us because this is fascinating. I know it's getting a little into the weeds a little bit here on the history, but it's fascinating to know how something as great a movement as eliminating slavery actually started with a few people, a few groups, a few organizations taking a stand against it and becoming political. Everything ultimately comes down to politics, how they pass laws, how they use the power and might of a country's military force, how they use the moral authority of leadership. And this is the beginning. If you want to go to the headwaters of the Nile as to where all this started to crumble in terms of slavery and the British Empire's involvement, this is the point at where it all started. So tell us a little bit more about the struggles over time that people dealt with in Great Britain to end slavery. Such powerful opposition to the proposed ban, combined with equal tenacity on the other side, simply dragged out the political struggle for decades, making ever wider circles of people aware of the issue. Something that had never been a public issue before now became a subject of inescapable and heated controversy for years on end. Slavery could no longer be accepted as simply one of those facts of life that most people do not bother to think about. The long, drawn-out political controversy meant that more and more people had to think about it. We are now at that critical moment of history where change occurs. And I want our audience to understand this is a critical point in history that we don't learn about in school. I want to continue focusing in on this particular point of history and the anti-slavery movement, the elimination of slavery, 
when we come back from this next commercial. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. As we finish up this final segment this week on the history of slavery, it's important to sort of step back for a second and absorb what we've learned, and that is that over thousands of years, people have been enslaved in multiple cultures, basically the strong over the weak, and the last group that was weak because other countries developed over time and defended their populations. So the last group that was attacked for slavery was Africa. And it was not just the United States getting slaves from Africa on the western side of Africa, but the eastern side of Africa was exporting through mainly through Zanzibar and other ports, but a large number through Zanzibar. I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen the statues, the commemoration of the slave trade over there and the evils of the slave trade from that side of the world going into the Islamic world and going into India and Asia and beyond. Now what we have is we have a situation where we have been following that history and we're down to where the anti-slavery movement actually had an impact in Great Britain. That's where it all started. And it's really important for this audience to understand this critical point of history, how a few people carrying a strong moral argument into the political world changed the entire world. It's a great lesson for us all to learn that from small groups of people with a strong moral argument can have a major change in the world. So I want to go back to the book again, The History of Slavery and get a better feel for what was happening in Great Britain at this critical juncture that the moral argument was being expanded. People are learning about slavery when they had never really learned about it, didn't have to face it. And people were in an enlightenment period where they were questioning um, faith, they were questioning religion, they were questioning the uh, government, they were questioning the foundations of the civilization they were living in to try to make it better, not to tear it down, but to make it better. And slavery was one of those areas that had to be resolved in the minds of these groups of people that were gathering force and arguments. It was a moral authority they felt they had, 
and it changed the world. So let's go back to Great Britain and the stories in the book as to how this actually evolved over time. The long, drawn-out political controversy meant that more and more people had to think about it. Eventually, such strong feelings were aroused among the British public that anti-slavery petitions with unprecedented numbers of signatures poured into Parliament from around the country, from people in all walks of life, until the mounting political pressures forced not only a banning of the international slave trade in 1808, but eventually swept the anti-slavery forces on beyond their original goals toward the direct abolition of the institution of slavery itself. Well, talk about a lesson in history and the power of the people with a moral authority being able to change the world. Tell us more. Was this just a temporary phenomenon? We know now that it wasn't, but how did it go from where these starting points we just talked about The politics of it seems to me was really the driving force that took it beyond even Great Britain and beyond uh, the Americas uh, to the entire world. Give us that background, if you would, please. For more than a century, these political forces were so unremitting that no British government of any party could ignore them. And even British politicians and colonial officials, with no personal sense of a need to ban slavery, were nevertheless forced further in that direction by political pressures. Not only were Britons forbidden to trade or hold slaves, the British Navy intercepted slave ships from other nations on the high seas, set the slaves free, and confiscated the ships. In this mega-movement of anti-slavery that started really in Great Britain, after all the political debate, the moral debate, how did they have the power to sort of force this on most of the rest of the world? Only Britain's overwhelming power made this possible. And even then, not against a powerful nation like France. But only extraordinary political pressures at home made it necessary. Moreover, this was a moral crusade continually fanned by reports from British missionaries in Africa and elsewhere, as well as by anti-slavery sentiments from other sources. This history and the motivation, which was moral, not economic, on the part of Britain, in fact, it cost them a lot of money, and a good part of their military was taken up and destroyed even in the process of stopping slavery, that today's intellectuals don't seem to accept Uh, that version of history. Um, What do you think about today's analysis of what happened during this period of time where Britain was the driving force as an anti-slavery movement? Yet one of the signs of our own times is that intellectuals have made desperate but futile efforts to depict the worldwide British anti-slavery crusade as somehow motivated by economic self-interest, rather than by the kinds of moral imperatives activating the kinds of people that today's intellectuals find hard to understand. At the time, however, John Stuart Mill said that the British, for the last half-century, have spent annual sums equal to the revenue of a small kingdom in blockading the Africa coast, for a cause in which we not only had no interest, but which was contrary to our own pecuniary interest. So in spite of what the current day liberals, progressives, socialists in the United States would have you believe, it was the British government that really initiated the anti-slavery movement and pushed it worldwide. Is that right? 
While Britain spearheaded the anti-slavery movement in the world, the 19th century saw anti-slavery feelings spread until they became common throughout Western civilization, and only in Western civilization. By 1888, every country in the Western Hemisphere had abolished slavery, as had all European and European offshoot nations around the world. Okay, now you've now identified the core source, the players involved, and the timing for the elimination of slavery in the Western world and in Europe. What about the rest of the world? How rapidly did they come along, and how much resistance was there in the um, non-European, non-Western culture world? Yet attempts to abolish slavery in the non-Western world provoked armed uprisings within the Ottoman Empire. And elsewhere, peoples unable to directly mount challenges on the battlefield nevertheless engaged in massive evasions and concealments of their continued trade in human beings. After the open slave market in Istanbul was shut down, slaves continued to be smuggled in, often at night and in small groups, from the Caucasus and from around the Black Sea, among other places. Suppressing the slave trade across the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea was much harder and took much longer than suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. While slaves were transported across the Atlantic in large ships packed with their human cargoes, slaves were carried in smaller and more numerous vessels, along with rice, fish, and other merchandise, from East Africa to the Islamic world. So the British Empire had an impact of getting rid of slavery in the Americas and then the um, United Kingdom around the world, the colonies that they uh, occupied at the time. What about the Islamic world? Why couldn't the British ships stop them as well on the eastern side of Africa as well as they did on the western side of Africa? British naval patrols were overwhelmed by the task of sorting out which of the innumerable Arab vessels were carrying slaves at a given time and place, and these patrols were never able to intercept more than a fraction of the slaves being shipped out of East Africa to the Islamic world of the Middle East and North Africa. Moreover, such success as the British had on the high seas led to a shifting of more of the slave trade to land, and especially to inland areas away from the ports and coastal outposts where British naval power could be exerted. With the passage of time, however, especially as other European powers began to adopt anti-slavery policies, not only for themselves, but for other nations that they conquered or influenced, the slave trade was forced to retreat further, though not to surrender. What do you mean by it was forced to retreat but not to surrender? What does that mean for the continuation after this period of enlightenment and worldwide change in attitude towards slavery, the anti-slavery movement now dominating the world? What happened after that? But while nations could deter other nations from slave trading, it was much more difficult to deter freelance pirates or freelance marauders on land from capturing and selling people wherever a vulnerable source of supply might exist. Thus, North African pirates raided the Mediterranean coast in the 16th and 17th centuries, while pirates in Asia raided islands in the Philippines and sold the people captured to buyers in Borneo, the Celebes, and other islands in the Pacific. The Spanish colonial authorities who controlled the Philippines organized resistance against these pirates, but it was not until the United States took over the Philippines in 1898 that slave raiding was stopped. 
In the French colony of Senegal, slavery itself was still thriving as late as 1904, though the slave trade had been reduced earlier. The Portuguese did not put an end to the slave trade in their colony in Guinea until just before the First World War. So what I'm hearing you say is that in the Western world, the politics and the moral authority that rested within those political decisions and with the people, slavery was basically reduced and stopped in every way possible. But in other cultures, you didn't have that same moral authority or the governmental power to stop it. And that's why it just diminished in those areas. Give us a little bit more background on how the slavery trade continued in many parts of the world, even after we in the Western world had abolished it. But where the Western world's power and influence were mediated, reduced, or otherwise operated only indirectly, their non-Western peoples were able to fight a long war of attrition and evasion in defense of slavery, a war which they had, however, largely lost by the middle of the 20th century, but which they had not yet wholly lost even at the beginning of the third millennium, when vestiges of slavery remained in parts of Africa. Let's wrap up this week with your views on the distortions that are happening uh, in terms of the history of slavery uh, presented in today's Western world and specifically today's American world teachings. Those with an instrumental view of history have managed to turn things upside down and present slavery as an evil of our society or of the white race or of Western civilization. One could as well do the same with murder or cancer, simply by ignoring these evils in other societies and incessantly denouncing their presence in the West. Yet what was peculiar about the West was not that it participated in the worldwide evil of slavery, but that it later abolished that evil, not only in Western societies, but also in other societies subject to Western control or influence. Well, Professor Soul, thank you so much for your book and for the teachings and lessons of history that most of us have never gotten in school, nor are we likely. So I hope this audience understands the power and the impact of knowing history and that the evils of slavery have been with us since the beginning of mankind. And while we participated in that evil as the United States of America during its founding, we set a precedent of documents that would, in fact, lead to its ultimate elimination and support the British who started the elimination before we even signed a declaration of emancipation proclamation. Thank you for being with us. Come back next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.